you please stand? Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 63. We'll read Isaiah 63, 15, across the chapter, division to 64, verse 9. So, starting with chapter 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, although Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look. We are all your people. Amen. We're now going to turn to Galatians 4 hear the answer to that prayer that God would rend the heavens and come down. Galatians 4, we're going to read just verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. You may be seated. There are two great doctrines at the very heart of the Christian faith that set apart Christianity from every other world religion. Or another way to say it is they they describe reality, really, in a way that every other false religion uh, denies and distorts. Those two great doctrines are the ones that are especially in focus in the great creeds of the ancient church, including the Apostles' Creed we confess together tonight, the Nicene Creed that we confess this morning. And those two great doctrines are the Trinity and the Incarnation. The Trinity and the Incarnation. Of course, those aren't really separate doctrines, are they? They, they go together. You can't really understand one without the other. So when we think about the birth of Christ, our focus often, and rightly so, is on the baby Jesus, right? It's on the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who was now born into the world with a human nature. It is indeed God the Son, the Word, as John calls him, who became flesh, And dwelt among us. Um, God the Father did not become man. God the Holy Spirit did not become man. God the Son did. On the other hand, we also shouldn't think that the incarnation, the coming of Christ, was the work of God the Son alone. As though he was acting independently. No, the incarnation was an act of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working in harmony, as they do in in everything. Working in harmony to save sinners and to carry out that profound, eternal, divine plan, as we heard this morning, for bringing many sons to glory. That's what I want us to focus on tonight in these verses from Galatians 4. I thought about just making the three points for tonight. Number one, the Father. Number two, the Son. Number three, the Holy Spirit. And that would do, but if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a little bit more information than that to help structure our thinking. So we're going to look at first, the fullness of the Father's time. Second, the Son sent forth. And third, the Spirit of adoption. So the fullness of the Father's time the Son sent forth, and the Spirit of adoption. Verse 4 begins, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So who is the subject of that sentence? The subject is God. More specifically, we could say God the Father, because he's sending forth his Son. So this is God the Father that Paul is speaking of. Uh, And this is showing us that God the Father was active in the incarnation in this way. It was by sending forth God the Son. Sending him forth to do the work of salvation. Uh, But we're not to think of that as a sort of -of spur-of-the-moment decision. It was not a reaction 
in other words, to um, certain developments on earth in the time of the Roman Empire. It was not an act of crisis management, as though God the Father looked down and he thought, wow, things are getting really bad down there. I guess, I, guess you better go now. No, it wasn't like that at all. When, when did God send forth his son, does it say? It says he sent him forth in the fullness of time. A habit I picked up from my dad is that when I pump gas at the gas station, I like to see if I can time up the pumping so that the dial stops right on an even dollar amount with no pennies. So you have to concentrate. You have to wait for the whole tank to fill up, and then at exactly the right moment, you have to let go so that you know you get an even dollar amount. Um, why? I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of fun. I do it because my dad did it. I like to think that it's harder for me than it was for my dad growing up because now gas is more expensive and so the numbers are moving faster, right? Uh, that's my excuse when I miss. Okay, so there's one illustration. You could also think, a little less silly, of an hourglass. You watch it, and if it's a big enough hourglass, like for an actual hour, not the little tiny kind for a minute, if it's a true hourglass, over a short period of time, just a few seconds or even a minute, it, it doesn't look like the level of the sand is really changing. And yet, slowly but surely, that top half is emptying out little by little. The bottom half is really filling up very steadily until, at a fairly precise moment, that last grain of sand falls. All the sand now filling the bottom half. There's a saying, I'm not sure of the origin, that um, God doesn't always come when you want him to, but he's always right on time. Which reminds me, of course, that scene early in The Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo says, Gandalf, you're late. He says, a wizard is never late. Neither is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Some people have reflected on why uh, the first century, uh, the late first century B.C. was such a fitting time for Jesus to be born. Uh, some people will talk about, for example, the, what they call the... the the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and the way the Roman Empire created the stability across the Mediterranean world, as well as the infrastructure, the, especially the road system and the, the commerce across the Mediterranean Sea that would allow early Christian missionaries to travel very uh, quickly and easily over long distances compared to other times in history. Uh, they could speak to people across all across that very wide geographic area using a common language as well, the, the lingua franca of the day, which was Greek, the language of the New Testament. And so these, these are some historical observations where we can say that from our point of view, yeah, this was a great time for the good news to spread after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. It's, it's really amazing, in fact. I'm inclined to think, though, that those observations from history are just barely scratching the surface of the wisdom of God in sending his son at the precise moment that he did. And no doubt there are depths of reasons we will never fathom for why this was the fullness of time. And yet, nonetheless, we can stand in wonder that God did indeed do this at the perfect time. Just as Paul says in Romans 5, that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, 
this whole idea of the time being fulfilled. I was part of the early preaching of Jesus himself when he began his public ministry. In Mark chapter 1, it says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, so this is going to be a summary of Jesus' early preaching. His message was this, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It was the fullness of time. The time of waiting was over. The time of fulfillment had now come. So all of those long years, the Old Testament and the the period in between the Testaments, God had been promising a coming salvation. The day of the Lord. That day of judgment on his enemies and deliverance for his people. A new dawn of hope for Israel. A new king, a son of David. And now the wait is over. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, this is the message of the New Testament. The wait is over. The time is fulfilled. What was going to happen has now happened. And everything that you Israelites have been waiting for has now, in fact, come true. Uh, Another example, this is Luke chapter 4. I love that scene where Jesus is reading in the synagogue from Isaiah 61. And it's this great prophetic preview of the the coming spirit-anointed messianic servant of the Lord. And Jesus closes the scroll, and he sits down, and he says, Today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine sitting in that church service, realizing that at that moment, all that Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled right before your very eyes? Or similar experience of the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when Jesus, uh, when she says, well, I know the the great prophet's coming is going to explain all of this to us that we don't really understand now. And Jesus says, well, I who speak to you am he. He's here now. The fullness of time has come. The wait is over. God had now sent forth his son. As some of you heard Friday night from Mary's song, God remembered, he remembered his mercy, what he had spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What he promised to do now In the fullness of time, at precisely the right moment, God, in fact, did. He followed through. He kept his promise. I want you to miss what this is teaching us, then, about the character of our Father God. Our Father. Not only that he is a promise-keeping God, that he will do what he says he will do, It's also teaching us that he will do it at the right time. He will do it at the right time. And so when you feel like the wait is very wearying, you don't understand why the hard things are lasting so very long, and your cry goes up, How long, O Lord, as so many of God's people pray in the scriptures? This is a big part of the answer. Until the fullness of time. Until the fullness of time. The Lord is not slow as some count slowness, First Peter says, but he's patient toward you. And, and any delay of his in putting a final stop to evil and suffering is driven not by his reluctance, not by his stinginess or his forgetfulness. It's driven by his wisdom. 
and his patience and his perfect timing. And just as surely as he sent forth his son in the fullness of time at the birth of Jesus, so surely he will send forth his son again in the fullness of time. We don't know when that be, but we don't know when that will be, but we do know that the timing will be perfect. And that the timing of every other act of God in your life in the meantime, between now and then, will be perfect in his wisdom and goodness and fatherly care for you. Well, the second thing we can focus our attention now on the Son sent forth. The Son sent forth. So when we talk about the work of the Trinity to save sinners, we often summarize the work of each person of the Trinity by saying this. We say that the Father plans redemption, the Son accomplishes redemption, and the Spirit does what? The Spirit applies redemption to God's people. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. So what is specific to God the Son, then, is that he actually carried out this mission of accomplishing salvation that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had agreed upon eternally. Now, in the fullness of time, the Son actually came to earth and did it. He actually carried it out. So this morning, we focused on the fact of the incarnation itself that Christ had to be made like us in every respect in terms of taking on a full human nature, a true human body and soul, not some kind of heavenly hologram that was just appearing or pretending to be a man. He really became man. He took to his divine person a true human nature. Uh, That's what's in view when Paul says, born of woman. But Paul goes on here to focus on something further Not just the fact of the incarnation, that Christ was born of woman, but also the circumstances, the situation that Jesus was born into. In particular, the relationship with God that Jesus was born into as a man because he was an Israelite. Um, We could and we should use the term covenant here. What kind of covenant relationship was there between the baby Jesus as an Israelite and God the Father? The answer that Paul gives here is that Jesus was born under the law. Born under the law. I've quoted for you recently that catechism answer where it says Christ's humiliation consisted, first of all, in his being born in the first place. That's the born of woman part. But that's just the first step in, in those stair steps of humiliation, right? Down into the, uh, that ends in the tomb. The second thing it says is that he was also born in a low condition. That's the laid in a manger. And then the third thing, the catechism says, he was made under the law. See that? He wasn't just, he didn't just become man. And he wasn't just born under very humble circumstances, laid in an animal feeding trough. He was made under the law. Why is that so important? Why is that so profound? See, it was humbling enough for the creator to enter into the world that he had made at all. Think about how much more humbling, lower still than that, it was for the lawgiver of the covenant 
to place himself under those laws that he had given and to enter into this life where he actually had to keep those laws as one of the covenant people. Why would Jesus do something like that? Of course, the reason was that his people had proven themselves, ourselves, to be pretty lousy at keeping that law. They could not do it. We could not do it. The more that we're confronted with God's law, the more we prove the more it proves to us our inability to obey it. That law cannot save us. It can only highlight our sin. But God sent forth his son. And his son placed himself under the law. Why? So that he could keep it for us. So that he could keep it in our place as our representative, our substitute. Christ was born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law by living that life of perfect obedience that we could not. By dying on the cross, the death that we deserve to die is the just penalty of that law against us. Christ redeemed those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons instead of that punishment we deserved. So Christ, of course, is the eternal Son of God, with a capital S, But through what Christ did for us, we get to become the adopted sons of God through our union with him. And that is what Christ was sent forth for. This is really important because uh, far more people celebrate the birth of Jesus than really understand what it meant, what it was for. What was Jesus born for? A lot of uh, people assume that Jesus was born just kind of to show us how much God loves us, in kind of a generic way. That uh, people will say, well, God wanted to get closer to us, uh, to show us just how much he cared. Um, and, and those things are not, they're not false, but it's such an impoverished understanding of the work of Jesus. If we just think of Jesus' birth as God giving us some kind of divine hug, because a big divine hug was not going to save us. Um, This gets compounded by a lot of um, very humanistic talk about all of us being brothers and God uh, being everybody's father, all of of us human beings being being God's children, which, uh, by the way, is not true according to the Bible. Um, That whole idea of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, there's a lot of talk about that at Christmas time. That is not Christianity. It is only through Christ that we become children of God as an act of God's grace for his people alone, through Christ his Son alone. Paul is reminding us that what we needed from God was so much more than a gesture of love. It was so much more than for God just to get closer to us. What we needed from God was redemption. We needed forgiveness. We needed a sacrifice for sins. We needed a founder, a captain, a pioneer of our salvation, as we heard this morning from Hebrews. We needed someone to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to keep the law in our place, and to earn for us the right to be called children of God. And that's what Jesus did. That is why the Son went forth when the Father sent him. If we were all children, if we were all God's children already, Well, Jesus wouldn't have to come and do what he did so that we could receive adoption as sons of God. 
Okay, so this time of year, uh, I expect it's probably the same for a number of you. Um, I end up listening to a lot of genres of music and artists um, that I don't really listen to any other time. I guess it's nostalgia. Some of it's new music I grew up with. Uh, I wonder if like, anybody listens to Bing Crosby except in December. I don't know. You can tell me if you do, but it would be a little weird, honestly. Um, no offense if, if you really, really like Bing Crosby. Um, but anyway, that's besides the point. Uh, one, the reason I bring this up is that one of these kind of random artists that gets dusted off in December for in our house is Sandy Patty. Anybody remember Sandy Patty? And there was this tape that I listened to as a kid, and the title track is The Gift Goes On. And I like this song. I'd like for my kids to listen to it because there's a lot of truth in the chorus, which goes, The Gift Goes On, The Father Gave the Son. And they say it's kind of call and response. And the gift goes on. The son gave the spirit. And the gift goes on. The spirit gives us life. So that we can give the gift of love. And the gift goes on. And as simple as that song is, and of course that's not all we'd want to say, but it is something we can and should say. Um, And I think that it really helps to capture, at least illustrate, something about Paul's train of thought here. You have this progression where God sent forth his son to redeem us, to give us the adoption of sons. And then verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, the gift goes on. Remember that the father plans, the son accomplishes, and the spirit that's what the Spirit applies to us, the redemption purchased by Christ. The Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Christ and he conveys it to us now in the living present. In Romans chapter 8, making a very similar point, Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption. This is a very experiential thing. It's not just a doctrine to master and to know, oh, I know this about the Holy Spirit. No, this is a reality to be lived out For the Holy Spirit to indwell you and not just to convince you that God is your Heavenly Father. Not just to convince you of it. But for Him to cry out from within your soul. To give you the voice to say with assurance to God, Father, as a matter of direct address, you're addressing Him as Father. You're calling Him Father to His face, not not merely saying the sentence, God is my Father. Those are two very different things. Our Father in heaven, that is what we are actually to pray to him and to say it not just as a form of prayer to repeat or a habit that we just always start our prayers that way. When we say that, we're to know the comfort and the assurance and the safety and the peace of that family relationship with your Creator and Lord who is so much better than any of the sinful and weak earthly fathers that we have known on earth. Through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we come to know our Father in heaven no longer as a threatening and demanding taskmaster. We come to know him as a tender and compassionate, strong, firm, Loving, near, 
gentle, wise Father. And we come to not just to know that that's true, but we come to know Him in that way. Come to address him that way and to mean it. That's what God wants for us. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray that way, our Father. Recognizing that at first and at times we may struggle to feel or to experience that family relationship with God. We may struggle to embrace and to live out that fact of our adoption. But see, so much of the Christian life is about, it's about growing into that fact growing into that reality, which is true whether we feel it to be so or not. But over time, what happens is we learn to know and experience and feel and live out in our choices and our words and our patterns of thinking that God really is our Father, that we really are His children, that, and all of that is because we belong to His Son with a capital S. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, There's an impulse, partly healthy, to make this son vocabulary um, kind of gender neutral and just call us children of God. And again, I'm, I'm not actually completely opposed to that. And I've done it some tonight. Sometimes it's appropriate to refer to us as children of God, and uh, sometimes that's a better way of, uh, of getting across the, the family relationship point of our adoption. We are sons and daughters of God, as we're men and women made in his image. There's another sense, though, where um, all of us, both sons and daughters of God, Paul is deliberately referring to here as sons for a particular reason. Um, See, our adoption, our sonship, is not only about our personal, family, familial relationship with God. It's evoking a legal reality, too. And in this first century context, it would have been the firstborn son who would typically be the heir of his father's wealth. And what Paul is teaching us here is that because of our union with Jesus, all of us, men and women, boys and girls, share that privileged place as the heirs of everything that the Father has to give to us. Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 describes as the guarantee or the down payment or the earnest of that inheritance. He's given us the Holy Spirit now to assure us and to give us a real taste in the present of everything that's coming when Christ returns. We're heirs through God. So when Christ returns and when will that be, you might ask. Well, you already know the answer. It'll be in the fullness of time, won't it? In the fullness of time, God will send forth his son again. And until then, as 1 Peter 1 says, he's keeping our inheritance safe for us, and he's keeping us safe for our inheritance. He's going to make sure that we get there safely and that it is safely ready for us when we get there. Jesus has gone, he said, to prepare a place for us. And he's gone to prepare a place for us, he said. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, he said, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. That's good news for God's people. That our eyes at last shall see him.
through his own redeeming love, for that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above, and he leads his children on to the place where he has gone. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Lord, we are so thankful that you have sent the Spirit of your Son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, teach us the meaning of this, but not just to master the meaning, Lord. Give us that heart cry, we pray, to you which can only come as your supernatural gift. Lord, we are not your slaves. We are your sons, your children, your heirs, not because of anything we deserve, but because of what Christ, your Son, with a capital S, has done for us. Thank you that we belong to him. We pray in his name. Amen.